Hello everybody and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and the interview that we have for you today is an interview that I've actually been uh, attempting to get for, for several years. Uh, I first uh, emailed his office in, in 2014 attempting to set up an interview and uh, finally this week I had the chance to have a conversation with the conservative columnist George Will. Now this introduction will be unnecessary for anybody who's vaguely familiar with American conservatism because George Will has had an outsized influence on, on conservatism uh, both intellectually and politically. Um, just to give you uh, some background detail for those who are not familiar with his work, he, he was born in, in 1941. He writes regular columns for the Washington Post where his current columns uh, generally include fierce denunciations of, of Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's presidency and those who, who have supported Donald Trump uh, throughout the, the primaries and since then. He also provides uh, commentary for NBC News and MSNBC and he won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977. He also served as an editor uh, for William F. Buckley's National Review from 1972 uh, to 1978 before going on to be a, a contributing editor for, for Newsweek magazine and writing a bi-weekly back page column all the way until 2011. So George Will is, is a very significant commentator, but he is also probably the fiercest and most eloquent of the Never Trump crowd. And because George Will is also a, a staunch pro-life person, because uh, George Will is also a great respecter and defender of religious liberty, one of the things that I wanted to speak with him about was his opinion of those who voted, for example, for Donald Trump because of their pro-life convictions, or those who voted for Donald Trump out of self-defense because they perceived Hillary Clinton as a very real threat to fundamental freedoms uh, that they needed. And, and talking to somebody uh, like Will, who has, has condemned Trump, has condemned the Republican establishment for largely going over to Donald Trump over the past year and a half, and this is somebody who has worked in a variety of different administrations and was personally familiar and personally friendly with many of the uh, great Republican presidents of the past, including uh, President Ronald Reagan. And so I was delighted when, when George Will agreed to come on and have a conversation with me about these issues, and this is that conversation. Uh, first question would be, uh, considering your, your long history uh, in the Republican Party, in conservatism, as a columnist, uh, working for various administrations, so have sort of the, having the long view of, of what's taken place over the last several decades, how would you define conservatism today, and to what extent was that relevant to what happened in 2016? Well, conservatism today is a persuasion without a party. Conservatism is always asked the sensible question, what is it you want to conserve? And the answer American conservatives give is we want to conserve the American founding, which is to say the doctrine of natural rights, which inherently limits the mission of government. This sharply distinguishes American conservatism from the European kind, which is sooner or later rooted in thrown and altar, blood and soil, organic understanding of society perfectly respectable in many ways, but not what American conservatism is or ever has been. So today, uh, conservatives look out upon the, the uh, stricken landscape of American politics and say that whatever conservatism is, is not, rather, populism. Right. It's not populism. It's not the sense that uh, uh, direct democracy and uh, plebiscitory government 
it's all it's it's the founder's sense of indirect republican filtered mediated tempered democracy and so in in, in 2016 uh, most people are, are still trying to figure out exactly what happened and you have a wide variety of analyses from your own to uh, Conrad Black and David Frum, and then of course the the opinions on the left. And so, to what degree, uh, in your mind, was Trump a singular figure, uh, a, a one-off produced by a certain set of historical circumstances, uh, or what, or is he actually a harbinger of a more permanently populist rather than conservative Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party today is more united behind Mr. Trump uh, at this point in his presidency, five hundred and. 40 or so days into it than it was under Ronald Reagan. At the 500-day mark, Ronald Reagan had the approval of 77% of Republicans. Trump has the approval of 87%. Right. So it cannot be said that he has hijacked a reluctant or sullen party. He's, uh, these people are enthusiastic about him. Now, there is a mild realignment going on because of uh, a few people like me, and we are fairly few, uh, have decided not to go over to the other side, but we're going to be without a party for a while, which is perfectly acceptable. Uh, so I, I, the question you ask is a good one because people. my feeling is that an awful lot of people voted for Trump not in spite of but because of his persona. They liked the smash-mouth kind of politics, the overturning of norms, the flaunting of the usual decencies of civic discourse. Whether or not anyone can come along after him and do that, I do not know. You might remember in 19, the last third-party candidate to win any electoral votes in the United States was George Wallace in 1968, right. 50 years ago. And Wallace, when he was shot and then left the scene, there was no Wallace-ism. Uh, it was all about him. My suspicion is that this is all about Trump also, that when he goes, uh, his the people who find him attractive are not going to find anyone else attractive because no one else is going to have uh, Trump's comprehensive disregard for civilities. Are there any torchbearers of, of, of political conservatism uh, that you would support still present in the Republican Party or uh, people that – could over the next several years present themselves as an alternative in 2020, uh, either to you know, run against Trump for the nomination, or if Trump decides that one term is all that he was in the mood for, uh, you know, actually run in a Republican primary again. Is there anybody that you see as a hopeful indicator that political conservatism still does have a, a shelf life? Well, my kind of conservatism is ably represented by Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. I wrote him in as my presidential vote mm. in 2016. I'm not sure, however, whether Ben will even seek re-election to the Senate uh, when his single term so far ends in 2020. Uh, he'd almost certainly be, have to face a primary challenge from a loyal Trump supporter in Nebraska. Uh, and the idea of someone like, uh, I mean, no one will challenge Mr. Trump. If he wants the nomination, he'll get it and right. he won't be challenged because... A, no one could topple him, and B, if you did, the nomination wouldn't be worth having because an enormous number of his supporters would then stay home. There are intelligent people uh, who have tried to be Trump fellow travelers without losing their reputations. I'd give you the example of Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, 
uh, a very experienced man with a distinguished military record who is sort of, if this isn't too oxymoronic, he's the thinking man's Trumpkin. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there are people out there, but it's way too soon to say, because this is right now Trump's party for as long as he wants it to be. Now, I, I have several collections of your columns, and, and some of the, the writing that, uh, in my opinion, you've done that's the most powerful is your writing on the abortion issue. I remember in particular one column, this is from years ago already, about a, a woman who had left her baby in a bathroom uh, to die, and you talked about how this was the result of abortion culture. And I've been doing a lot of, of interviews and, and research on the phenomenon uh, in 2016 and onwards. And for pro-life voters, uh, pro-life voters in the, in the United States are generally single-issue voters, and they look at the 60 million aborted babies, uh, as you know, as a historic injustice, and that regardless of, of what other uh, infelicities a candidate might have, they're worth voting for on the chance that they will in some ways mitigate that injustice or, or start to put in place justices that will lead to that injustice being ended. So to what degree was, was, was the pro-life movement's gamble on Trump a justified or understandable in your view? If you are a single-issue pro-life voter, it was a defensible vote because the, the Supreme Court, of course, took custody of the abortion issue, removing it from normal political give-and-take in, with Roe v. Wade in 1973, and therefore the article Constitution's Article Three courts are everything to such a single-issue voter. So mm -hmm. I understand that. Uh, never mind the fact, but we ought probably ought to stress the fact that there's no reason to believe that Mr. Trump has the slightest conviction about this subject. Right. Uh, he was he was pro-choice for a very long time. He was even for late-term abortions. Uh, he found out that, that uh, if he wanted to uh, rent the Republican Party for his presidential aspirations, he simply had to get right on this issue, and so he did. Now, what's what's interesting about about the response to that, and 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 you you know a lot of people in the party, and that's why many people are asking the question: Why did that gamble pay off so well? The the one constituency he seems not to have slighted is the anti-abortion constituency, and as you say, uh, most pro-lifers, even going into the election, were quite sure that Trump was not one of them. And when I believe it was the Daily Beast tried to find pro-life leaders willing to say kind things about him. They could find virtually none. They could only find people who were begrudgingly talking about him as their only option in a, in a binary choice. So uh, why do you think that Trump hasn't uh, you know, um, sort of scorned that particular constituency? Is it, is it Mike Pence? Is it pro-life members of his administration? Or what do you think it could be? I think it's the pro-life members. I think it's Mike Pence. It's also that Mr. Trump is very assiduous in cultivating, nourishing, and placating his base. So he, he he has a politician's feral instinct for not getting too far ahead of those who are most intensely on his side. Now, another question that's interesting, because there was a book uh, recently written by uh, Stephen Mansfield called Choosing Trump, where he, he takes a look at uh, conservative Christians and why they back Trump, and it goes all the way from the sort of repulsive uh, sycophancy of, of somebody like Jerry Falwell Jr., who seems to have completely offloaded his credibility and his willingness to defend anything that Trump <laughs> does. And then there are others who say, look, like we didn't have any choice, we didn't like it, and we voted in self-defense because Hillary Clinton would have posed a real threat to religious freedoms that we need to you know, live as full citizens in America, and Mr. Trump, at a bare minimum, wasn't going to do those things, so we'll vote for him uh, for as much as for what he won't do as much as for what 
he will do. To what extent do you think uh, this binary system forced a lot of people to vote in self-defense simply because they saw Hillary Clinton as a threat to their interests? I think that's exactly right. A great many people voted that way. The United States had never in its long history had a single presidential candidate enter the fall campaign of a presidential year with higher disapproval numbers than approval numbers. In 2016, we had two. The election of Donald Trump has many explanations, but you have to begin with the fact that the Democratic Party put up the only person on the planet he could certainly have beaten right. in a singularly unattractive and shop-worn candidate in Hillary Clinton. Uh, that, so you had a perfect storm. You had the the many long casualties of globalization and all the rest combined with the fact that the political party that uh, for most of the 20th century thought of itself as the defender of, of blue-collar America seemed to have lost interest in them. You've said in other interviews that the, the aesthetics of the Trump presidency would be enough for you to oppose it in and of itself. The, the degradation of the, you know, the office of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, uh, the sorts of things that he does, the, the incessant fibbing, if not lying. And when you look at the Trump presidency as it is, and the number of commentators who are shocked at the fact that he's been willing to, in some cases, implement a fairly standard Republican agenda, if at the end of term one you see a, a solid conservative Supreme Court, solid justices, is there anything you can see taking place where you would say, okay, what he accomplished in real time overrides my aesthetic concerns and, and the sort of repulsive character traits that Trump has? No. How's that for us? direct answer uh, the, a lot of conservatives keep saying but Gorsuch that is right. Gorsuch or, or now Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are sufficient it's going to take a lot longer to repeal and replace the coarsening of our political culture that uh, Mr. Trump has administered than it has been to repeal and replace Obamacare uh, I, I just uh, it's just way too high a price to pay and by the way uh, a lot of the people who are supporting him sort of gritting their teeth and furrowing their brows and saying, well, if we'll stick with him because the Supreme Court once remade will overturn Roe v. Wade. That, I'm pretty sure, is not going to happen. Right. Uh, Roe v. Wade is, is well woven into the fabric of American life, and the idea that uh, it will be flatly repealed is absurd, which, by the way, of course, all that would do is return the issue to the 50 states as something that they can legislate about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure that there are very few states in the in the union that would ban abortions, say before the 20th week of gestation, which means that 95% of all abortions would still continue to occur. Right. Now, one of the the it's it's very difficult to actually discern what is taking place in the United States right now because you have on the left. Um, sort of an incessant discussion about Russia, and and each new thing that Trump does sort of triggers another outcry, but nobody seems to remember what happened two weeks ago, much less last week, Tuesday. To what degree do you think the sort of relentless negative media cycles that Trump is, is experiencing, to what degree are they actually effective in reducing his public popularity, or is he actually the Teflon guy? Can nothing stick to him? Well, he's not Teflon because he's st- he's been underwater from day one of his presidency. His approval rating oh, is about 41 or 42 percent right now. His disapproval is in the 50s, and that hasn't changed very much. Right. 
So I don't think, on, on the one hand, I don't think there's a backlash against the media. On the other hand, the media isn't uh, isn't making much difference in this regard. Uh, there, there is simply an. Is there anyone in America who's undecided about Donald Trump at this point? <laughs> right. I doubt it. So you see a blue wave coming in the midterms. I'm not so sure. I think that the uh, it's perfectly possible for uh, that the House will be uh, turned over. What we have to say at this point is if the future is like the past, the Republicans will certainly lose the House. And the future always is like the past, right up until the moment when it isn't. Right. And we've seen enough unprecedented developments in our political life to not wager a lot on, on the future. But... Uh, I would expect, if I had to bet my net worth today, I would bet that the Democrats would narrowly control the next House. When we look at at this state of of American polarity, and a lot of polls have come out even on issues like abortion, where Gallup says uh, Americans are facing off at roughly 48-48, and, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, to, to many people, seemed to be the candidate who, who, who was trying to create a social compromise. So, right, so gay marriage would be legal, but on the other hand, religious liberty would be protected. And with his resignation from the court, you, we've seen a very stark contrast between these two Americas that are, are kind of uh, duking it out for the institutions and the reins of power. Do you think that a republic this divided, what's the way forward for a republic like that when it seems like there's so little room for compromise on issues that people hold so dearly? Well, one way forward is to talk about issues where you can actually split the difference. You can split the difference on infrastructure. You can split the difference on health care. You can split the difference on lots of things. What makes abortion so singularly difficult and polarizing is the way we have cast it through Roe v. Wade. That is, that it's a fundamental constitutional right through, essentially, I don't care what they wrote, the way it worked out was essentially through all uh, three trimesters, makes it so difficult to even discuss. Did you ever wonder what American constitutional law of abortion would be if the number of months in the gestation of a human infant were, not a, were say, a prime number? Seven, 11, 13? Right. Then the Supreme Court could not have discovered constitutional significance in the fact that nine months is divisible by three. The fact is that uh, we have, by, by making this a matter of fundamental right, we've made it difficult to talk and compromise. For example, there, have, there was a measure put, put before uh, uh, Congress to say no abortions other than for the life of the mother, etc., rape, incest, life of the mother, after 20 weeks. That would still make America more permissive than almost any European nation. Right. Europeans must watch our argument and say, how did you ever get, make this such, a, such an absolute kind of d- debate? Now, you've written a lot, of course, over the past year and a half about the state of, of political conservatism, about the state of the Republican Party, when you look at the left and when you look at how how far the pendulum seems to have swung on their side, you see, you know, even Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in many cases were scrambling to keep up with what was at least perceived to be their base because of how how just how progressive and, and how left wing uh, they were. What what in your mind is, is the state of the left today and, and what's what's their electoral viability with the new ideas and the new absolutism that they've come into over the past five to ten years? I think as the, the bidding begins for the loyalty of the Democratic base, 
which is farther from the center, as far from the center of the Democratic Party as the Republican base is from the center of the Republican Party. As this bidding begins, you're watching a long list of litmus tests come out. To get it to be seriously considered for the 2020 presidential nomination, you have to be now for abolishing ICE, that is the enforcement of the immigration laws. Mm -hmm. You have to be for a government job for anyone who wants it. You have to be for uh, free college tuition for everyone. You have to be for Medicare for all, basically a single-payer system. by the time they get to their first debate, which will probably be in August 1919 or 2019, uh, you're going to have a party so locked in that they will have made it very difficult to win a general election. One uh, one final question is: We're looking at the state of, of various American institutions. The media is, of course, a hot topic, and the uh, the hot takes on on the state of the media started. You know, in the early morning hours of uh, of Trump's election victory, and, and they're they're still ongoing. There's a, an antagonism now between between the president and the media that's existed since the primaries. But what do you think the, the state of the media in in general is now? Because what I find is what I've done with my Twitter account, etc., is I've subscribed to all the far left and all the far right, and then all the middle of the road. Uh, publications, because then with a couple of uh, a couple of scrolls, I can see the exact same story being told three or four different ways. <laughs> yes. And most most of the time, it's it, it's very difficult to determine what exactly the truth is. Well, let's take a step back here and look at how fast things have changed. 1980, 81, CNN has invented the first cable channel. Until that point. At the dinner hour in the United States, 80% of all the television sets in use were tuned to ABC, NBC, and CBS. That oligopoly began to be broken up by CNN, followed by Fox News, followed by MSNBC, etc., etc. So what you get now are people picking their media source, their journalism source, for the purpose of strengthening their confirmation bias to confirm what they already believe, not to tell them something they didn't know. It's uh, it, it, Everyone's living in their little intellectual silos at this point. Most Americans are paying very little attention to either what's called the mainstream media or even the cable channels. There are 327 million people in the United States, and at any given time, about 322 million of them are not watching cable television and are not listening to talk radio. Right. They're not just busy being angry at all. And an enormous number of young people, people under 30, are not getting their news from any of the so-called news sources. They're getting it from Facebook and and other social media. So when we talk about the media, you and I might tend to talk about uh, traditional media, defining even Fox, MSNBC, and CNN as traditional media that are decreasingly relevant. Mm. And so the result of this is what? You've been in, in media for decades. So how do you see this polarization and this intellectual silos scenario, as you put it, how do you see this affecting our ability to actually have political discussions and find, as you put it, a, a way to split the difference? Well, I think we can get back to that, but it's going to re- require a different kind of president. I, I hate having a presidential-centric political system to the extent that we do now, but the fact is, 
presidents can, as we're seeing in the negative example of Mr. Trump, set the tone for the country. The good news is that someone with a more civilized temperament, someone who wanted to lower the temperature, someone who would say to the country, deep breath, everybody, we are, we are all citizens in the same boat here, could, I think, with remarkable speed, change the, the temperature of the country. The problem is that as the Democrats go harder and harder left and try to outbid one another in, in the ferocity of their opposition to the other side, uh, I have no idea where this person is going to come from. Well, on that unresolved note, Mr. Will, thank you so much for joining us. I was glad to be with you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with conservative commentator and Washington Post columnist George Will. For those of you who want to check out our past interviews, we've had a, a wide variety of guests on over the past several weeks, including uh, Peter Hitchens and Douglas Murray. You can go to thebridgehead.ca, where we also feature almost daily commentary. You can find these interviews on either iTunes, YouTube, or SoundCloud. And this interview was brought to you by Total Rentals. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you join us again.